final exams. Final exams. You guys remember those? Do you guys remember final exams? The last two weeks of school were dedicated to prepping, cramming, and stressing for those last final major tests of the year. Now, I personally think that it would have just been easier if all of those teachers would have just taken my word for it that I knew and had like retained all of that information over the course of the year. Now, Deb, I can talk to you later about that. It would have just, no need for finals. You, you know, you guys with me on that? Like, it would have saved a lot, save, would have saved a lot of hassle and the school year could have probably ended on a way better note than it did. So, I don't know, but all, I'm just kidding. Like, I completely understand. I completely understand why throughout the year, teachers give us tests. It's to see if we actually truly understand the material. And the test came in two forms. One was quizzes, pop quizzes. That still sends a shiver down my spine, even to this day. Those were small tests along the way. But then you had the biggins. You had the midterms, and you had the finals. And like us, in Abraham's life, he had a lot of those small tests. He did well on some, not so well on the other. But Genesis 22 here is one of the big tests for Abraham. Verse 1 starts by saying, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham, which I think begs a couple questions for us today that are key to understanding the story. One, why does God test us? And two, how do I know if God is testing me? So I want to answer the first question first and not the second question first. So why does God test us? See, God's idea of testing is way different than our understanding of testing. For us, in our mindset, going through school, testing is a pass or fail scenario. It's an assignment given to us to gauge our proficiency in that one area. But think about it. If God knows everything, if he knows everything about our hearts, our successes, our failures, how many hairs are on top of our head, then this understanding of being tested is not really logical because God already knows everything. Why God tests us is because he wants us to experientially know what, for us to know what's in our hearts as it relates to him, and he wants us to know also what's in his heart for us. It's not just a mental knowledge of where we're at, but he wants to share life experiences with us that grow us in likeness to himself and in depth of relationship with himself. Now, it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you guys. We love you, celebrate you. Dad, I love you. Thank you for helping me with my sermon this week. Uh, yeah, happy Father's Day. Can't wait to talk to you later. You'll see this in a couple days, so... Happy Father's Day to you, but happy Father's Day to you guys as well. I am not a father. I can mentally know a lot about what it's like to be a sacrificial, loving, fun father from my dad, from watching you guys go about it, from reading books, from reading the Bible, but it is a whole other ballgame 
that is far greater when I hopefully will one day experience it myself. Two totally different things. And it is a way more life-changing experience to actually experience it than to just have a mental knowledge about it. And hopefully one day with my kids, I will be able to share experiences in my heart that I love about, or, you know, with them, going to baseball games, smoking meat, taking a nap in the afternoon, going fishing, laughing with a friend, serving other people. Like, I hope to share some of those things that are on my heart with my kids so that we are aligned in the same meaningful things like my dad did with me. I hope this morning, I hope this morning that you are reminded that God is not just out to get something from you. He's not just out there for you to pass a test or fail a test. God is personal. God is relational. He's emotional. He himself wants to share his good experiences with you and with me and with us as a corporate body of his followers. He wants to share that with us. Hear that again. He wants to share his good experiences with you. Not just on Sunday, not just at Citigroup, but throughout your life, throughout the rest of your week. He wants to share his, your, his experiences of his goodness, love, trust, adventure, creativity, forgiveness, and sacrifice with you. His goodness. The deepest part of what makes you, you, God wants to make use of, and he wants to explore. He wants to share that experience of preparing you and making you into his own creation more and more. Pulling up all those ugly weeds from your past, healing your hurts, your woundings, revealing your bad habits and why you do those. He wants to heal those. Tilling that hard soil of your life and for him to plant gospel seeds and then water your life and seeing your life come to fruition and blossom in a way that you could not imagine. That is God's desire for testing us. So let's keep reading. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. That phrase, here I am, is gonna be repeated three times in this passage. So like I did a couple weeks ago, keep that in your back pocket. It's gonna be important. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Maybe you're hearing this story for the first time ever. And you have a, what is God asking his follower to do? Like, this is crazy. Are you, are, are you serious? Because... I've heard this story essentially my whole life, and it wasn't until recently that I had to wrestle with some of the problems and some of the emotions of this text that aren't clearly communicated. Like, Abraham never wrestles with what God is telling him to do. Like, he, he never asks, why God? He never asks, how God? Like, why not? Because those are some, some pretty important things that I might want to know if I'm going to do this. Like, are you kidding me, God? This is the child that you have promised me for over a hundred years. 
This is the child that you gave me to bless the entire world. This is the child of promise, and you want me to kill him? What kind of God asked you to do this? Don't do it, Abraham. It's not right. So, yeah, I've asked the question, why does Abraham not object? Not even once, not even a little to God's seemingly far-out request. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest with you. I'll shoot you straight. As your pastor, I don't fully know. All right? I don't know. I don't know if it was the cultures that Abraham had come from and that surrounded him that just expected child sacrifice. Or I don't know if it was because Abraham knew the covenants that he participated in required firstborn sons to be handed over as part of the agreement. I don't know how he thought this was normal practice and didn't push back. But what we do know, what we do know is that Abraham trusted God and obeys. Abraham trusted God and obeyed. Abraham does a ridiculously hard, far out, doesn't make sense type of thing, and he does it. He's obedient. He wakes up early, probably because he could not sleep, and he does the obedient thing. And I'll tell you what, he may have trusted God. It says he, he did trust God, but he gave God every chance to change his mind. The journey from Beersheba, where he was living, to the land of Moriah that God called him to go to to do this, if you go there today, it is a half-day walk. All right, it's a half day walk. Probably from here, from Red Oak, I don't, I don't know what it is, but from here to Red Oak. And it says he did it in three days. You think he may have been dawdling a little bit? I don't know. I like to, to imagine that because I think I would. I would give God every opportunity to speak in and change his mind. I can only imagine as Abraham is walking up the mountain with Isaac, the thoughts of what he is there to do are weighing heavy on his mind. Put yourself in his shoes. What, what, would your, what would your demeanor be? What would your demeanor be? Probably weeping, visibly angry with God, shaken, disturbed. And I think it's in these moments how we can know if there's an area of our life that God is testing us and experientially revealing to us where our hearts are. Are they trusting God or are they far from God? Are we trusting something else? God commanded his people later on in the book of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Think about your life as a whole right now. Think about all the different aspects. Think about your heart and the things that you desire the essence of your life and who you live it for and how you live it, how you expend all your energy in a day, all that you have to offer this world, everything that your hands do, everything that your hands produce, everything that you seek to accomplish, what you spend your time, your talents, your resources on. Think about those things. Now, if there's an area of your life where you're feeling confused, stressed, you're feeling inadequate, angry, irritated, it's more than likely 
that God is testing you in that area of your life. He's giving you an opportunity to see what you put your trust in. And he gives you an opportunity to respond by being a good father and just leaning back in to him and trusting him. He's waiting to give you an experience with himself in relation to those specific areas. And he wants to showcase all of his goodness. I love like uh, when Jason's around and Ryan has some sort of issue. Like I love how he just nestles himself in and, and Jason just puts his arm around. I think that's the image that God wants us to see. It's, it's yeah, it's supposed to be a very emotional, very deep understanding and we have a choice. And so Abraham is probably confused. He's probably stressed, irritated, angry, but I highly doubt in this scenario that he's wearing his emotion on his sleeve. Because if Abraham tips his hand and gives any indication that something is dreadfully wrong, it's going to start a conversation that he is not ready to have. And so I'm guessing Abraham is talking about the ball game that was on last night. Like, did you see Vanderbilt come back and, and win at the College World Series? Like, that's what, he, that's what he's talking about. Hey, have, you know, how's that nice stretch of weather we've been having? Except for that bad rainstorm last night. Like, you know, that was, that was a pretty bad thunderstorm. He talks about anything that allows him to disengage from the situation at hand and not tip, and tip his hands, even though he continues to trust. But then it hits. Then it hits. Verse 7 says, Isaac spoke up. Isaac spoke up. The Hebrew language here suggests that Isaac interrupts a conversation. Abraham may be trying to avoid the situation, put it in the back of his mind, even though he's still trusting, but he is interrupted with the very word he does not want to hear. Daddy? Father? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? What are we, what are we doing here? Where's, where's the lamb? Daddy? Facing his son's imminent death. It's fight or flight time. You guys ever had those moments? It's like, hey, am I going to put it up and fight? Or am I just going to peace out? It's fight or flight time. What will Abraham do? Is he going to run? Is he going to abandon his son? And Abraham responds with, here I am, son. Here I am. In Isaac's moment of greatest need, Abraham isn't going to leave his side. He's not going to leave his side. I hear Abraham say, son, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am here. I am with you. And Abraham and Isaac continue both trusting in some way, in some shape, in some form, that as he says, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. But the important thing is they do it together. And it continues. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, 
Abraham, Abraham. God calls out his name twice. Abraham, Abraham. Repetition in the Bible, if you ever see it, is a big deal. Specifically in the Bible, when you see repetition of names, God does it seven times in the Bible. Four times in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament by Jesus. Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel. In the the book of Acts, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And every single time when someone's name is repeated, they get a radically different identity, purpose, and mission. Their experience with God completely changes everything about them in the best way possible. Anytime we see this, God is about to radically do something new with a person, and it all hangs on this one phrase. Here I am. Here I am. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Moses, Moses responds with, here I am. Saul, Saul, here I am. That response is a prerequisite for God using us, for God using his people. Three times in this passage, we hear the phrase, here I am. So it must be pretty important to God. It must be part of God's character that he wants us to also experience. Not just for our sake, but also for the sake of other people in our lives. 500 years later, when God is calling Moses to go to Egypt to rescue his people, Moses asks God, God, who should I say sent me when they ask? Like, what is your name? Because they're probably wondering just where in the world have you been for 400 some years? And God says, tell them my name is here I am. It means I was, I am, and I always will be. God tells Moses, essentially, I have not left their side. In their moment of greatest need, God is here. God is still here and he always will be here. Here I am comes up again later in the book of John, chapter 18. Jesus is standing in the garden when the religious leaders come to arrest him. And Jesus asks them, who are you looking for? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. You know what he says? Here I am. And then what happens? They all fall down. It's crazy. It's Jesus's moment of fight or flight. Will he go to the cross or will he save himself? In the world's greatest moment of need, Jesus isn't going anywhere. Here I am. Here I am. I see you. I will provide the sacrifice. I will follow through on my promise to be the sacrificial lamb because I see my people. I see their need for saving. And God never asks of us what he has not done, what he has not experienced, or what he is not himself willing to do. Abraham's story with Isaac is a neon sign pointing to the the death of the father's only begotten son, Jesus. 
whom he loved. There's a, there's a loving father. There's an obedient son walking towards his death. There's wood strapped across his back. There's a substitutionary ram. There's a God who does not withhold anything for his people. And why, why does this matter so much? Why does this matter so much? Because on our side of history, if we believe and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus stood up in our place and said, here I am, and stood in our place and took our sin and our death and doesn't ever leave us, then it changes everything about us. It radically changes us. It changes our view on the world. It changes what we put our trust in. It changes our relationship with God. It changes our identity, our mission, and our purpose. When we trust that God has gone ahead of us, when we trust that God is with us, when we trust that God has been there and done that in the past, it sets us up. It sets us free to do the same. Here I am, God. Use me. God, this, may seem, this, this seems contradictory in my life. It doesn't really make sense to me. It seems to go against everything that I, I feel, that I understand, everything that's normal to me, that I, how I view you. But I trust you. Here I am. Here I am, God. God says to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Think about the test. Because when this story is all over, Abraham walks off that mountain having learned some incredible lessons about who God is, where God's heart is at through this experiential knowledge. He doesn't just leave with a mental knowledge. It is all experience. He names the place the Lord will provide, but the far greater Hebraic translation is the Lord who sees. The Lord who sees. God sees us. He sees you. He sees me. God sees us. He sees us. He walks with us, and he doesn't ever leave our side. On that day, God told Abraham, Abraham, you trust me in this area. You didn't withhold the most important thing in your life. Well done. Good job. You understand me and my heart a little bit better today. You have discovered and experienced part of my sacrificial heart for the entire world. You have trusted me in this test, and your heart for me is beautiful. It's beautiful. I will continue to see you, I will continue to be with you and your people and I will take it upon myself to provide a son as a sacrifice so all of your generation, all of your people, all of your descendants to come, you and me can have life. 
And so I ask, I ask the question today, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this to our lives? In the test, God's getting to the point, us, God's getting us to the point of saying freely with a clean conscience, God, here I am. Use me. But the truth is, it comes at a cost. And even Jesus gave his followers a heads up. He said, hey, before you follow me, you can go to Luke 14. Before you follow me, count the cost. Because you know what it costs? It costs everything. It costs everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What will it cost you? What has it cost you? What is it costing you? And are you willing to continue to lay it down? Think of a contract. Think of a contract. Do you have your contract all filled out and signed and you just need God to sign off on your plans? Or are you willing to place a blank contract before God, signed on the dotted line, and have him fill it in? What will it cost you? My favorite example of two people who counted the cost and said, God, here I am, is the lives of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Troubled by the idea that people around the world were going to go their whole life without hearing about the good news of Jesus, their hearts were st stirred by godly compassion and they felt an intense call to the mission field. They spent three years in Ecuador preparing and waiting for the opportunity, the opportunity to minister to an Indian tribe known as savages to the other Indian tribes around them. All missionaries who had ever reached these people before were all killed. And after years of preparation, on January 2nd, 1956, Jim finally got his chance. Jim and three, or I'm sorry, four other missionaries made an attempt at contact by flying over their land, over their village, and lowering gifts in small buckets down to them. It worked. After this initial contact was made, the men decided that it was time to meet the tribe face to face. And they did. They landed on the beach, and their first encounter went amazing. They, uh, it was positive. They had communication for a while. They even took one of the young Indian men up in the plane because he was so curious about it. But the following day, through some sort of miscommunication, the Indian tribe perceived the missionaries as a threat, and they decided to kill them. And that morning, Jim and the other Three, uh, four missionaries went to the beach to meet the Indians, excited about what had happened, and they were greeted with an army of spears. And all four men lost their lives that day. And one of the Indians later documented that Jim Elliott actually had a gun and reached for his gun, and he could watch, watch the process in his head. And he said, it seemed like he had an encounter with God and it was revealed by God that he said, I'm just going to trust the story. I'm going to trust the story and let God do his work 
And the story continues. I think the most impressive part of of this entire story is Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth's reaction to the tragedy. Speaking of her fellow women uh, who had lost their, their husbands, this is what she said. The prayers of us widows are for the Indians. We look forward to the day when these savages will join us in Christian praise. Less than two years later, less than two years later, Elizabeth Elliot returned to minister to the very same tribe, the very same savages that had killed her husband and reached them with the good news of Jesus. And that tribe was flipped up on end. They experienced the kingdom of God. The Elliots answered God's call. Jim, Jim, here I am. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, here I am. They put their entire lives on the altar and sought the kingdom of God to come to the people that don't deserve it. There is a cost to saying, here I am. Use me, God. Use me. The good news in our testing, when we go through all that stress, all the chaos, is that we have an opportunity to learn something about ourselves, to learn something about God, and let, it, and let the Spirit change us for our future relationship with God and other people. Every chance that God takes us through is an opportunity to learn and to grow. And at the end of the test, I think we can agree, Abraham experienced a lot about God's heart of sacrifice, love, and obedience. Abraham was changed. And I don't think that it didn't make a difference in the generations to come. Would you guys close your eyes with me? And as a church, um, I just want to spend some time asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Um, It's a celebratory text, but it's also a heavy text because it comes at a cost. As a church, I just want to spend some time considering the cost of following Jesus in order to lay it all down and to honestly be able to say with a clean, good conscience, here I am. Jesus does not always require such things. But in those moments, are we willing to allow him to if he so chooses? I'm gonna ask some some questions. Some are we willing to follow Jesus questions. And I hope that even just one connects with your heart this morning. But I wanna encourage you also to add your own specific questions to these two. And remember that this is not something that God himself did not experience in sending his own son. He said, I am willing to go to this extent for the people that I love. Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means losing some of our closest friends? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means alienation from family? 
Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means giving up what we want to do, our ideas, our free time? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means moving away from the places that we love? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means moving to the people that we can't stand? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means laying down my life goals and the American dream? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means losing our job, less pay, a less favorable work experience, ridicule from coworkers? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means the loss of our reputation? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means laying down our rights and even our life? Holy Spirit, would you speak this morning? Would you convict us of those, of those places, those times in our life where we don't fully trust you? feeling led by the Spirit. I, do you guys know the song, I Surrender All? Would you guys help me sing that this morning? I, I'm springing this up on you. I, I don't think you guys will be ready, but would you sing that with me? Just the chorus. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Those of you that probably know the song way better than I do and can sing it way better, but would that be our prayer this morning? Would that be our prayer this morning?